Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is John Samples. I'm the director of the Center for Representative Government here at the Cato Institute. And I'd like to thank you for coming to our policy forum today on an issue that perhaps could be the most important one, uh, perhaps not the most common at all, but perhaps the most important one of our time. Uh, the issue, of course, being citizens versus the ruling elite. And our guest today will have something very vital to say about these issues. Uh, let me do a little administrative. Uh, if you've come to Cato before, you know uh, how things go. But let me uh, lay it out a bit. We're going to talk uh, here for a while. Each speaker will uh, uh, speak for perhaps 15 minutes or so. Then we'll open the floor up to, uh, for, for discussion, questions and answers. And uh, no later than 1.30, we will go to lunch upstairs. And I'll repeat this, but we will simply go upstairs on the this lovely and very new spiral staircase uh, that you passed on the way in here. Um, I would ask also that you have uh, your cell phones off for our uh, uh, duration of our forum today. And with that, I'd like to get into the actual meat of this. You know, in preparing for this and thinking about and talking to the gentleman with us today, I was very much struck by the theme of our, our could be of our uh, forum, could be described by the subtitle of one of our guest blog, Mark Meckler, who uh, his blog Across the Fence has the subtitle "The Return of Self-Governments." It's not something we talk about every day in America. We take it all too much for granted, but self-governance is always at issue. That led me to, recall, to uh, recall the words that I'd read many times in looking at Mark's blog, the, the idea of, the, the just stuck in my mind, the genius of the American people. Now, where did that come from? So I started looking, and I realized it was from my own personal hero, James Madison. In Federalist Number 39, James Madison poses the question whether the new Constitution is, quote, strictly Republican, unquote. Republican here with a small r, r. He continues, Madison continues, it is evident that no other form would be reconcilable with the genius of the American people, with the fundamental principles of the revolution, or with that honorable determination which animates every votary of freedom to rest all our political experiments on the capacity of mankind for self-government. If the plan of the convention, the Constitutional Convention of 1787, is therefore found to depart from the Republican character, its advocates must abandon it as no longer defensible. Now, what did Madison mean by Republican government? Self-governments? He says it's a government which derives all its powers directly or indirectly from the great body of the people. However, as we'll hear more about soon, if you look at, uh, say, public opinion polling over long periods of time, the striking thing is, and you look at questions like, uh, do you agree, people are asked, do you agree or disagree with the proposition public officials don't care much what people like me think? If you look at that and look at the trend lines over the last decade or more, you see a very stunning and disturbing element that suggests that many, many people more people agree with the idea that public officials don't care much about what they think. So today we will be talking about the genius of the American people about self-government. 
And we are fortunate to have three uh, very informed and engaged individuals who have taken it upon their, and I think in so many ways when I think about these people, they've taken, they could have had other different kinds of lives, but they've taken it on themselves to stand up and try to return and uh, to defend self-government and the Republican character of our society. Our first speaker will be Eric O'Keefe. Eric is the chairman and CEO of the Sam Adams Alliance and the Sam Adams Foundation. He's most well known for his support of term limits and for his current involvement with the campaign for primary accountability. He is a founding board member of a term limits advocacy group, US Term Limits, and he has also been a board member of the Cato Institute. He served as president of Americans for Limited Terms from 1996 to 2000. He now serves on the board of directors of Wisconsin Club for Growth, the Institute for Humane Studies, and Citizens in Charge. Prior to 2007, uh, Eric served on the board of directors of Americans for Limited Government. He wrote a book, who, wrote, who Rules America? The People Versus the Political Class, which focuses on the founding principles of the country, makes the case for term limits, a book praised by no uh, smaller personage than Milton Friedman. With Aaron Steelman, he also co-authored the analysis, The End of Representation, How Congress Stifles Electoral Competition. Eric, we welcome you today. Thanks, John. Got to turn this. How's that sound? Am I okay? I can meander. Thanks. Um, I'm working with a group of citizen leaders from around the country, and the reason we're highly engaged at this time is we see the Republican peril. We see a series of bipartisan boondoggles followed by piling debt upon more debt, and uh, we don't see a solution coming from the beltway. Um, and in the course of looking for what's wrong with the system and how we might fix it, we've we dug back into American history, into the roots, and we've also dug deep into recent American politics for some insight into the problem and the solution. And right now, I want to do a, a, a dive back to the founding period because uh, my, my favorite story of the founding period is a brief one that captures a tremendous amount of uh, insight that is often lost in our histories of America, particularly the ones that start with the Constitution. So this is a report from a historian, Mellon Chamberlain was his name. He wrote a book on John Adams in, uh, uh, in the 19th century. And I'm going to read some from the book. When I was about, so this is Mellon Chamberlain writing. When I was about 21 and Captain Preston was about 91, I interviewed him. This was Levi Preston he was interviewing. And by the way, yesterday was the 237th anniversary of the shot heard around the world, the battles of Lexington and Concord, April 19, 1775. So the interviewed person, Captain Preston, fought at Concord, April 19, 1775. He's being interviewed when he's 91 by this young historian who says, Captain Preston, why did you go to the Concord fight of April 19, 1775? The old man bowed beneath the weight of years, raised himself upright, turned to me and said, why did I go? Yes, I replied. My histories tell me that you men of the revolution took up arms against intolerable oppressions. What were they, said Preston? Oppressions? I didn't feel them. And then Chamberlain again. What, were you not oppressed by the Stamp Act? I never saw one of those stamps. I always understood Governor Bernard put them all in Castle William. I am certain I never paid a penny for any of them. Well, what about the tea tax? 
Tex? I never drank a cup of it. The boys threw it all overboard. Then I suppose you were reading Harrington, Sidney, and Locke about the eternal principles of liberty. Preston said, what? I never heard of them. We only read the Almanac, the Catechism, Watts, Psalms, the hymns. That's all. And then Chamberlain asks, well, then why did you go? And, Mar and Preston goes, young man, what we meant in going for those red coats was this. We always had governed ourselves, and we always meant to. They didn't think we should. That's, his, that's why he went. In 1775, we always had governed ourselves. And then Chamberlain has a wrap-up paragraph that captures, it's a wonderful paragraph on American history. And that gentleman is the ultimate philosophy of the American Revolution. It correctly assigns its underlying cause. It explains and accounts for the action of the patriotic party. For the attitude of the colonists was not that of slaves seeking liberty, but of free men, free men for five generations resisting political servitude. So that five generations, by the way, would take us back basically to the Mayflower Compact. In America, self-governance was a creation. It wasn't a gift of intellectuals. It wasn't brought to us by the predecessor think tank to the Cato Institute back in the Pilgrim days. People practiced it. They had the distance of the Atlantic Ocean. The Mayflower Compact helped set up the attitude of we'll have to take care of ourselves. And especially in New England, the town government, self-governance was deep. Citizens were highly engaged. And they owned it. They set the tax rates, and they decided how to govern themselves. That was the American heritage prior to the Revolution. That was the heritage being defended in the Revolution, which was an attempt to preserve that self-governance. Now, it had implications well beyond that, because when they sought the principles to defend what their lives, they dug deep, and they did things that Cato scholars are well familiar, familiar with in terms of justifying. But the intellectuals were used largely to justify a defense of life as they knew it and as they lived it. And America was the freest and most prosperous area on Earth in colonial times. In other words, this was an extremely prosperous, free, low-tax area. At the time of the Tea Party, there was one British tax, and it was on tea, and it was small. And, uh, and so there, wasn't, there weren't, as Chamberlain says, there weren't great oppressions going on. So that's the roots of America that are still much alive in us today. And Mark, uh, co-founder of Tea Party Patriots, will have some insight into how alive that is across the country a little bit later. Now I'm going to skip through uh, 120 years of American history in uh, 10 minutes. The Declaration, uh, a, a wonderful founding document that we all admire, the, um, uh, my favorite historian of the founding period, uh, Pauline Meyer, wrote a book on the, on the Declaration. And in her appendix, she has 90 declarations of independence, 90 plus, passed by various towns, colonies, and some private trade groups, passed before July 4th, 1776. So the Declaration was responsive. And of course, the people in the Continental Congress were elected. They were elected by Americans. So they were representing, they were. They were not running out front of the people. Um, and, and the Declaration, as Jefferson wrote in 1824, was meant to voice the opinion of the, of the patriots of the time. It wasn't really meant to break new ground, even though it used some novel language. So that was our America. And under the, then the Constitution was set up for this free land that had been free and that had defended its freedom. And now it had to move from benign neglect, you know, being titularly ruled from Britain to actual liberty in our own government. They set up a constitution to preserve that way of living. And it was highly successful, uh, historic, of course. 
but here's a history of what's happened and where we think it broke down um, our, our functioning, not the Constitution. Early on, uh, the parties developed with Hamilton fighting Jefferson, and the political parties in America were not envisioned in the Constitution. They weren't legislated. They were private organizations voluntarily formed. Early voting in America was done orally. There was no ballot and there was no paper. You, you went to these places and people, you know, you, 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 people knew that you lived locally and they took your vote, they counted the vote. That's what was early voting. Paper, paper voting developed early in the 19th century. The, that paper balloting was done by the voter or the party. There was no government printed ballot. There was no such thing as ballot access to discuss. So we had vibrant private political parties which persisted through the 19th century. Private caucuses, private nominations, in effect, private labeling. Candidates were not well known during the campaign because the campaign wasn't about the individuals. It was not candidate-centric campaigning. It was parties and platforms. And really, only the presidential candidates and the governor candidates were well known and highly covered. Candidates for Congress, state legislature, and so forth, it was, you were nominated in a private convention in August or September. The party ran the campaign. So we had short, loud, high-intensity campaigns uh, but they weren't about the individual people. They were very different. Now, what we had in the, in the late 19th century, by the way, then we evolved to the parties printing color-coded ballots, often running them as newspaper ads, and uh, they would have a, often a donkey or an elephant to help code it. And pe new, new immigrants who, uh, who were illiterate could vote deliberately and they, because they were voting for a party, and they were both generally allowed to vote, and they could vote knowingly for a party without being able to read the names of any candidate because they, the parties distributed the ballots and coded them. Uh, so balloting wasn't secret, by the way. Because, and, and in fact, the parties would have poll watchers and watch which color ballot you were taking in. And so that had its negatives, but it, it, uh, it led to a very high voter turnout in organized communities because they could, you know, they tracked who voted. And, uh, and it, in, in late 19th century America, the citizenry was highly politicized, highly engaged, and we hit the historic highs of voter turnout among eligible voters were in the late 19th century America. Now, women weren't voting at the time in most states. They were in Wyoming and some western states. But among eligible voters, uh, turnout was really high in the 19th century. And then what happened? And this is the, a pivot point that's undercovered in American history. And uh, um, the best book I've seen on it, by the way, is Why America Stopped Voting uh, by uh, Cornblue. Um, who's uh, at Michigan State right now, heads of the poli-sci department. A really good book from about 10 years ago, Why America Stopped Voting. The progressive assault uh, and reform assault, one of its key targets was the parties, the smoke-filled rooms. They did good marketing against them. And among the elements of the assault were printed ballots, which is called the Australian ballot for a reason, because our printed ballots were first tried in Australia. So the government took over ballot printing from the parties. One of the motivations was to uh, uh, was frankly to suppress voting by blacks and by immigrants. That was one of the motivations. It was an elitist and kind of condes or patrician thing. We had a lot of immigration coming in at the time. So they wanted printed ballots with a uniform color where if you couldn't read, you effectively were not able to vote knowingly. Um, they also, that also gave the government now the ability to regulate the existence of political parties or who could be on the ballot. So we have the beginning of the regulations to impede third-party development. Then we had an attack, and formerly, if you were, you could be nominated by the Populist Party and the Democratic Party, and your votes would be added up in all states in the 1880s. Those votes would be accumulated. 
Today, we have this holdover you've probably heard of in New York, where you can be Liberal Party nominee, Democratic Party nominee, and the votes are added together, which is called fusion voting. That's illegal in 43 states. In other words, if, you, if you're on the line of two parties in most states, they will only count the votes that you have the most of. That was done. The banning of fusion was done to crush third parties at the turn of the century. They also went after funding and outlawed corporate contributions to campaigns in 1907. They did a lot to regulate conventions and what parties do, but here was the kill shot for the, part, for the power of independent political parties was the direct primary, which was started. The first statewide direct primary was uh, initiated by Bob LaFollette in my state of Wisconsin, 1904. By 1912, 43 states had a direct primary for most nominations. So the direct primary, which sounds great, democratic, open, and so forth, said instead of these activists huddling in a room and deciding who gets on our slate, we'll take it to the people. But that is an experiment that's had disappointing results. And what it did is it took an informed, accountable network of activists, the party, Sometimes they were party bosses. A lot of times they were wealth-creating business people who went to conventions and actually decided which people deserved to be nominated for office. It took them out of play through the nominations to the public, and, but instead of a highly engaged electorate in primaries, what we got was renomination became almost automatic. And we, for 100 years, primary elections have not been used as an effective way to hold politicians accountable. And our work with Mark and, and others is oriented toward trying to use primaries for the first time in American history as an accountability mechanism. Um, and we're excited about it. It's, it's, uh, we've had some early success, and, uh, and it's, uh, it's kind of head-shaking to look at, at some of the numbers that uh, um, Jeff and Mark have. But the long, the long and short of it is, we, I did some of this analysis in the 1990s when, in fact, Ed Crane encouraged me, to, uh, Howie Rich and me, to get involved in term limits. And we dug deep then, and we discovered that the average number of new members in the House of Representatives in the 19th century was 40% every term, 4-0. The average time served in the U.S. House in the 19th century in March when they started their term was 2.2 years. Huge turnover. And it was often enforced by mandatory rotation in office by the parties. That was the pattern. It was a taking turns. So we, we decided to do uh, term limits to try to knock it down. And uh, we got term limits imposed by the voters in 23 states on their own congressional delegations and by a 5-4 vote with Justice Kennedy, the swing vote against us in 1995. Those were tossed out. I think an important error. But we have term limits in 15 state legislatures, and I'm sorry to say that the impact of term limits alone has been disappointing. <coughs> we have term limits in California, Michigan, Ohio, those, and you know, it's hard to brag about the results of governance in those states. So I view term limits as a potentially helpful step if combined with the type of work that Mark Mecker is doing that I talk about later. There isn't a quick fix or an easy fix. We need a high level of citizen engagement and that's just an ongoing thing. And, and, and uh, the best news is that what is required is a revival of a long American tradition of engagement and self-governance, of us owning the process and owning the results of government. So with that, I'll step aside. Thanks. We'll see if Justice Kennedy does a little better in June. Uh, we, we certainly, if you're out there, Justice Kennedy, uh, 
you, you can uh, get back part of your reputation with us in June. Um, our second uh, commentator today will be Jeff Pale. Jeff is Special Pro Projects Director of Ballotpedia. His responsibilities uh, include overseeing the congressional and state legislative teams, as well as managing the redistricting content. Complicated job there. Um, prior to joining Ballotpedia in 2010, Jeff worked for the South Carolina Policy Council as a policy analyst. He has a master's in public administration from the College of Charleston and a bachelor's in history and journalism from Emory. Jeff currently lives in Boston. Welcome to Cato, Jeff. So I have a PowerPoint. Okay, so uh, thanks for that intro, John. Um, Eric talked a lot about the disappointing results in primaries and the uh, renomination becoming automatic for party candidates. So what I want to do is talk a little bit about how we studied the state legislative elections uh, from 2009 through 2011. And, you know, unfortunately, we did see some statistics that pretty much backs up what Eric was saying. Uh, at Ballotpedia, we focus a lot on down-ballot issues, uh, state legislatures, ballot measures, hence the name Ballotpedia. And when we were building candidate lists in 2010 for all of the state legislative candidates, we kind of felt like there was a really uncompetitive environment out there. And if you can remember the 2010 election, um, everybody kind of in the media was, you know, announcing this rhetoric about a really hotly contested election season. This is when the Tea Party was becoming um, more notable. The federal elections, there was all these different media outlets portraying them as hotly contested. That was just the rhetoric we thought was out there. But we didn't think we saw that at all in state legislatures. So before I go into a competitiveness study that we developed, I just wanted to give a little reminder about what went on in 2010. There were 6,125 seats up for election that year, which in, was in 88 of the 99 state legislative chambers. Within those chambers, uh, Democrats went into the election holding 52, while the GOP held 33. And you can remember in state legislatures, just like in Congress, it was a big boom year for uh, Republicans. They flipped 20 chambers from Democratic to Republican. Uh, they now held 53 after the election, picking up 650 seats. Uh, and a total of about 507 incumbents were defeated on general election night. That represented about 10.4% of the incumbents who ran in 2010. So to step back, we developed a competitiveness index that looked at three factors that we thought would help us gauge you know, how competitive our elections within the 50 states and the ones that were uh, holding races that year. So the first factor we looked at was uh, open seats, uh, meaning is there an incumbent running for re-election? Just because quite simply, if there is no incumbent in the seat, that's going to breed more candidates to come out, which breeds more competition and more choice for voters at the polls. The second factor we looked at was if the incumbent is indeed running, is there a primary opponent uh, for this incumbent? And this kind of touches a lot on what Eric was just talking about regarding the renomination process being pretty much automatic. Finally, the third factor we looked at was in the general election itself, were there at least two major party candidates on the ballot. The reason we chose this factor was if you look at there are 7,384 state legislative seats and about 99% of them are either a Democrat or Republican. So basically if you're a Democrat or Republican you're going to win on general election day. So if there's only one of that candidate on the ballot it's essentially a shoe in and 
therefore there's just no choice for voters. So based on our index, uh, we scaled it on a zero to 100 scale uh, and ranked all 50 states, looked at all of the different seats that were holding elections. So for us, zero was bad, 100 was good. And in a perfectly competitive environment, you'd have 100% of seats open, 100% of the incumbents facing a primary, and 100% of the general election seats having at least two major party candidates. Now, this, the, competitive, the perfectly competitive scenario is actually impossible, much like a limit can't ever hit zero, because if you had 100% of open seats, you would have no incumbents to face a primary. But the idea is zero, bad, higher the number, good. So let's take a look at our results from what we had. Uh, how many seats had no incumbents seeking re-election? So there were 6,125 seats in 2010. And of those races, um, a total of 4,985 incumbents ran for re-election, which meant only 18.6% of the seats were actually open in 2010. Um, thus, 81.4% uh, of the uh, incumbents sought to retain their seat. And we did look at it, um, if you excluded the term-limited states, that figure actually jumped to 86.6% sought re-election uh, because we felt like it was interesting to look at the dichotomy there because if an incumbent is term-limited out, they're actually being forced not to run again as opposed to you know, choosing of their own free will. So the second factor was how many incumbents faced a primary opponent in 2010. And we found that 1,133 incumbents had an opponent in the primary which was only 23% of the races. So 77% of incumbents put their name down to file to run again and were just automatically gonna show up on the general election ballot. Combined with factors like redistricting, you know, we know that that pretty much can guarantee an incumbent to re-election. Uh, and the primary, which could and should be the actual election, the, the incumbents were just not facing any opposition at all. Of those um, 1,000 so odd, uh, incumbents, only 96 of them were actually defeated in the primary, which is 8.5%. So if you take the 4,985 incumbents who filed for re-election, 98.1% of them advanced to the general election in November. And our last uh, factor, doesn't it's not incumbent-centric. Uh, this is just about all general election seats where there are two major party candidates. And we found that uh, 2,000 seats had only one major party candidate, which meant only 67.3% had two candidates on the general election ballot. So, you know, whether it's a you know, Libertarian candidate, a Constitution Party candidate, Green Party candidate, uh, you know, the fact that there are essentially, there are statistically irrelevant percentage of them in state legislatures guarantees election for either a Democrat or a Republican. So if it's a Democrat versus a Green Party candidate, you know, for all intents and purposes, uh, in our index, that's not competition at all. Um, so in, in essence, one-third of all races, the candidate was assured victory before voters even showed up to the polls. So the top performing states uh, for our study in 2010 were New Hampshire, Michigan, and Arizona. And the three worst performing states were Texas, Tennessee, and Delaware. But you can see from the index score in parentheses there that even the best performing states had a failing grade by grade school standards. Uh, you know, Michigan is second, but they still had a 58.3. 
Uh, and the way we arrive at that figure is we take the percentage for all three of our factors and just total them up and divide by three. And that's how you get the index. New Hampshire does extremely well because they're just such a unique model for state legislatures with a 400 member state house. Each member represents about 3,000 uh, citizens. The total number of uh, campaign contributions to New Hampshire State House candidates in 2010 was about um, half a million dollars total. Uh, if you look at a single state Senate seat in California, they raise well above that just for themselves. So it's a really unique model in New Hampshire, which is why they performed uh, the best of all the states. But you can see even with New Hampshire, they still had a 65. So um, the historical data kind of falls in line with this information as well. Um, one study that was done in the marketplace of democracy looked at historical state legislative elections from 1992 to 2002. And much like we found in 2010, uh, incumbents were reelected at a 90 to 95% rate. Um, only about a quarter of all legislators were new after an election, as opposed to say 50% uh, in the 19th century. Um, even in the 1930s, that figure was closer to 50%. And uh, only about 25 to 30% of all general election races were decided by less than 20 points, meaning most of them were 65% to 35%, uh, which again is just further showing how little competition there is within state legislatures. Uh, one unique fact that came out of that study was uh, the conclusion that elections are more competitive immediately following a redistricting year uh, in part because, say, incumbents are drawn into the same district, uh, new voters uh, for the incumbents breeding a little bit more challenge. However, uh, I'll get to it a little bit later, but thus far with um, the 2012 elections, we are actually seeing the opposite of that, and it might actually be a little less competitive than 2010. So I wanted to talk about three very small sample-sized case studies of how a primary can be such an interesting way to hold an incumbent accountable. Uh, and those three are in Rhode Island, North Carolina, and South Carolina. So Rhode Island is, is a Democratic-controlled state legislature, both the Senate and the House. Um, and in 2010, in the Republican state Senate primary, uh, pitted an incumbent Leo Blyce against a challenger, Nicholas Kettle. Blyce was a 20-year incumbent of the state, of the state Senate. Uh, in 2008, he won his re-election um, pretty comfortably, especially considering it's a democratic state in a year when Barack Obama won election to the White House, so it's a, it's a swing year for Democrats. And yet he still won re-election um, out of 14,000 total votes cast. Uh, he won by about 7 percentage points. In 2010, he faced a primary challenge from Kettle, and out of 1,000 votes cast, uh, the incumbent Blaze lost by 23 total votes. This is a very, you know, small sample size here for this one district, but you, it's quite clear from 2008 to 2010, you're getting 114th one, one the turnout of voters from the general election to the primary. Uh, you know, I mean, public choice would tell you that voting is irrelevant, but right here we're seeing in primaries, voting actually can be relevant, and uh, it can be a, a pretty in, interesting scenario. In the general election, Kettle went on to win out of 9,000 votes cast. Uh, so what this is going to show us is that and the incumbent would never have lost in this district. This was quite clearly a Republican-drawn district in Rhode Island. And he won in 2008, and he won in, in 2010. But the primary would have been the only time 
to challenge this incumbent. And if only 23% of incumbents are facing primary opposition, uh, it's very hard for voters to really hold them accountable. Another scenario just like this one was in North Carolina, where you had incumbent Bruce Goforth facing a challenger, Patricia Kiever, in a state house primary. Uh, Goforth was in office since 2003. And in the 2008 general election, a big year for Democrats, uh, he won by 35 percentage points out of 41,000 votes cast. So right off the bat, we're seeing this is a Democratic-drawn district. But in 2010, with 6,000 votes cast in the primary, he is unseated by the challenger. In the general election, the challenger goes on to win election. This tells us, just like in Rhode Island, this is a partisan-drawn district. 2010 was a boom year for Republicans, especially in North Carolina. They flipped both the state Senate and the state House to be Republican-controlled. So by doing that, um, and the fact that a Democrat won this district, that tells you right away that this is clearly going to be a district where a Republican will never win, and the only chance to do unseat an incumbent was going to be a primary. The final example I have is in South Carolina. It actually is not a quote-unquote success story like the first two. Uh, incumbent Dan Cooper faced Joshua Putnam. And in the general election, Cooper, he didn't face even any opposition whatsoever. He was one of the top five most powerful uh, legislators in South Carolina. And in his primary in 2010, he actually was almost unseated by an, an unknown challenger, uh, Joshua Putnam, who he didn't campaign at all from what we've read. And even still, it was only a three percentage point difference. Cooper's general election, he faced a Constitution Party candidate, and it was no contest whatsoever. Cooper has since then actually resigned, maybe because he faced a difficult primary challenge in 2010. He's a lobbyist now. Um, and I forgot to mention the one, my favorite point about the Rhode Island Senate race was that the challenger who unseated the 20-year incumbent was a 19-year-old dishwasher at Cracker Barrel. <laughs> and it kind of shows that anybody can win a race if you think about a primary. But, you know, kind of like Eric was touching on before, that the political parties want primaries to turn voters away from trying to run as a candidate. But the, if you try to run, the, the primaries are an option. So what's been going on in 2012 so far? Uh, 26 states have had signature filing deadlines, and we've had a chance to build candidate lists and analyze 19 states. So far, we've seen open seats are 21%, which is up a little bit, and that's from 18% in 2010. Uh, incumbents facing primaries is uh, at 24.9%, and major party candidates is at 61%. So the total index from 2010 12 so far is 35.8, which is less competitive than 2010's figure of 36.39. It's still early in the process, but I would venture an early guess that the reason for this is because of really hyper-complicated redistricting that went on over the past uh, you know, two years or so. In a couple of states like Pennsylvania and Kentucky, they actually ended up throwing out the map and are using the districts from 2000 to 2010. So you had candidates trying to run against an incumbent, and they filed under the initial map, but then they ultimately had to get more signatures from the old districts. And it, in a number of states, it's just been really, really complicated. So our theory so far is that this turned away a lot of candidates from even trying to run. Um, and it's, a, it's an unfortunate occurrence to see that uh, you know, after 2010, we really had hoped that 
the, our statistics would improve in 2012, but it looks like competitiveness is still a problem in state legislatures. That's it. Well, Jeff made my day. Uh, I'm the co-editor of The Marketplace of Democracy, the book he uh, mentioned, uh, which you can get from Cato Institute. It was a joint, uh, an interesting joint project with the Brookings Institution. There's concerns across the political spectrum about these problems of political competition. Uh, our next guest is, I'm happy to welcome back to the Cato Institute, Mark Meckler. Uh, Mark Meckler was one of the citizen sparks that helped ignite the Tea Party movement. He was the co-founder and a former national coordinator for Tea Party Patriots, and I'm told he has just become senior advisor to campaign for primary accountability. Mark comes from the rural foothills of Northern California. He has a BA in English from San Diego State and graduated with honors from the University of Pacific with George School of Law in 1988. He built a career in real estate and business law for almost a decade, and prior to his accidental entry onto the political scene, he specialized in internet advertising law. Mark knows what it's like to be a business, a small business owner in America. He has owned a variety of businesses from manufacturing to food service and has seen the legal challenges facing a wide variety of businesses across the industries. I should just add here, uh, some of our studies of the Tea Party movement show that indeed um, small business owners are very much a, a large part of the Tea Party movement uh, right from the start. For most of his life, Mark was not politically active. He never campaigned for nor donated to any candidate. Due to his distrust of both political parties, Mark has been registered as an independent for more than a decade. Welcome, Mark. Well, thank you for having me. If you guys don't mind, I feel trapped behind the podium, so I'm going to come out where I can actually see you guys. Uh, you know, Eric started by giving us the history of self-governance in America and explained how deep that taproot runs in the culture. And I think a lot of us forget that it runs even deeper than the Constitution, that it's pre-constitutional. And that's really something that Eric taught me as I started hanging out with him. When we're taught American history, at least how I was taught it in the public schools, it almost starts with the Constitution. And so we think about people sitting around and deliberating a government formed around the ideas of liberty, and, and the constitutionally protected freedoms that we sometimes take for granted. But it goes back, like Eric said, five generations. And it developed organically in the American public. They're, they were here on the new continent, and they were free and, of necessity, designed institutions whereby they govern themselves. And I think the Preston story that Eric told about why people fought for self-governance, what, what was this idea of liberty that literally put them on the battlefield where they risked their lives, their businesses, their families, they put it all on the line. It's pretty amazing that they did that for an idea. An idea that they didn't necessarily have a deep intellectual contact with. You know, the Preston story tells that he was a farmer and he hadn't read all these treatises and he wasn't following necessarily the politics of the day. He just knew that they had always governed themselves and they always intended to. And I think to, to make a jump way forward in history to the second Tea Party-inspired revolution, that's probably true of most of the folks who initially engaged in the Tea Party movement. And it's certainly true of me. It wasn't, I didn't get engaged from understanding my history so deeply that, that I had read all these great authors. I got engaged because I was frustrated, because I was feeling like so many people in America that 
it wasn't up to me to run my own life anymore. More and more, the government in every sphere was telling me how to run my life. They were doing it directly through legislation and regulation. They were doing it indirectly through taxation. And it had become oppressive, frankly, to the majority of Americans. And as we started to look at this problem over time, as I've traveled around the country three years now, literally from end to end and top to bottom, I heard a common theme running through Americans. And it's not just Americans on the right, it's not just libertarians, it's people on the left as well. They're just tired of government in their business. And I would say that that's most people in America. And the majority of Americans believe, 52%, that their congressman can and probably is bought and paid for. That's an astounding statistic. 80% of Americans now say that the federal government does not have the consent of the governed. It's actually a higher figure today, or sorry, a higher figure during the American Revolution believed that King George III was the legitimate ruler of the colonies. Then people believe today the federal government has the, the legitimacy and the consent of the governed. That's scary. That means that we're at a pre-revolutionary moment. In 2010, we had a congressional approval rating of roughly 17%. It fluctuated a little bit. 17%, but we had an 87% re-elect rate in the House of Representatives. That's a fundamental disconnect. And you hear that that's because people love their own representative and they hate Congress in general. I can tell you that's not true. Rasmussen shows today, for example, that only 26% of people have a favorable uh, look at their own representative. So there's a fundamental disconnect taking place which means, at the core, that we no longer are a representative democracy. And that's incredibly dangerous. That's the foundation for our form of government, is the idea that we send representatives to our state capitals and to here in Washington, D.C., to the federal capital, to represent our interests in Congress. They're not doing a very good job if only 6% of us think that they actually represent us now and we actually like the job they're doing. So there's this fundamental break. And so one of the things I'm here to talk about is the campaign for primary accountability. This is a campaign that is, I wouldn't even call it nonpartisan, it's apartisan in nature. It's not ideological, it has no policy bent to it, it has no party affiliation. The idea is representation at its root. The idea is that whoever is the representative from a district, radical idea here, should actually represent the people in that district, should be popular in that district, and they're not, as, as I showed with that previous statistic. And so we look for four things, the campaign for primary accountability. Number one, we only work in single party districts. That's a district which, statistically speaking, is not going to change hands from Democrat to Republican or Republican to Democrat. We don't play in safe districts because there are plenty of people who do that already. There are millions of dollars that pour into those districts. And frankly, people have a choice in those districts, right? If there's a chance of flipping it from one party to the other, it means people actually have a choice. So we only want to be engaged in districts where people don't have a choice, where the voters have no real options. That's number one. Number two, we're looking for a district with a long-term incumbent. We define that generally as eight years or more, somebody who's already served eight years. Number three, we're looking for a district that already has a legitimate challenger. Uh, campaign for Primary Accountability, CPA for short, is a super PAC. And so we don't coordinate with candidates. We're not involved in recruiting candidates or talking to candidates. So there's got to be somebody out there who's already stepped up. And when we say a legitimate challenger, it means somebody who has some base in the community. They can be a business leader or a community leader. They might already have successful political experience. They show that they can raise funds on their own. They can build a political machine because you've got to have somebody who has a chance of winning. 
And then that's where we get engaged and actually start spending money. We do polling, telephone polling. What we're looking for is the popularity rating or the re-elect numbers for an incumbent politician. We're looking for somebody who's in the range of 50% when we do initial polling. So only roughly 50%, 51, 52% of people are inclined to re-elect. We call that uninformed re-elect. And then the polling continues, this is all done through robo-dialing, to find out what if we tell people what this person has actually done, both good and bad. And we find out what is the informed re-elect number. And so if we find that that number drops when people actually know what's going on, if it drops into, you know, below 50%, then that's a race where we'll look at engaging in that race. It's a little strange, it's paradigm breaking, because we personally end up engaged in races where we have ideological differences and probably disagree with the candidate that we might be supporting. And it's, like I said, it's Democrat and Republican, and, and my leanings tend to be to the right, and Eric comes from a libertarian background, but we're engaging in races all across the board. And we've been pretty successful. You have to understand how bad it is out there. With 85% of districts are fixed in Congress, right? They won't change hands. So remember, that means only 15% of us actually have a vote that matters in the general election in Congress. That's pretty scary, because that's where we're supposed to be represented here in Washington, D.C. In 2010, which was a banner year for change, it was the Tea Party year, right? You'd think we'd have these incredible results in the primaries. 396 incumbents stood for re-election in 2010, and out of that, the outrageously high number of four lost their primaries. Four in the entire country. What's amazing about that is roughly a third increase from the historic average over the last four cycles, which was three. And in fact, more people die in office in the House of Representatives than lose their primary. So God's doing a better job or nature of creating turnover than we are as people. We laugh at that, but it's pretty scary. You heard we're not really represented in the states. We're having trouble getting rid of incumbents that we all say we don't like. And we're clearly not represented in the people's house, the most powerful branch of the American government or what should be the most powerful branch. We're no longer represented there because we don't really have a vote in the general election and we don't really participate in primaries. 11.5% of eligible Republicans on average participate in their primaries, in the congressional primaries. 8.5% of eligible Democrats. So it means we're not even participating in the one place we can make a difference. And we can make a difference in the primaries. This is what's extraordinary. This is where the power is. The CPA strategy was designed essentially on, on what I would call the Apollo 13 basis. You guys probably saw the movie and remember Apollo 13, there's an emergency, right? And you only have a certain amount of tools and they put the engineers in a room, and they put all the parts on the table and they say, this is what you have to work with. How can we fix the problem? So we looked at the system. We all agree that government is broken, right? Congress is broken. We know that we don't have a long time to fix it, and we need some fundamental change right now. So we can talk about constitutional amendments, we can talk about legislation, we can talk about broad sweeping change, but we wanted to look at the tools that were readily available to us. When we looked, we saw, Eric said, the primaries have never really been used effectively, but we saw that they could be. With such a small percentage of people turning out to vote in the primaries, that consequently has the effect that it doesn't take a lot of people being engaged, new primary voters, to change the results in a primary, right? Such small percentages means you only need to reach a small amount of people to create change. So we've actually got a track record now. It seemed like a crazy idea at first. We've had roughly 11% of the primaries in the country have passed so far. Campaign for Primary Accountability has engaged in seven primaries around the country. And I think we can claim victory in three of them, two outright, one was uh, Dan Burton in Indiana, 
we polled his district. What we found out is that he had a 25% informed reelect. I mean, that's astounding. Reelected cycle after cycle, only 25% of his constituents, when they knew what he did, actually wanted the man in office. When we polled that, we released that poll via press release. We went to some of the big donors in the area and let them know that we would be participating in that race. And about a week later, he said he was going to retire. So that's a good result. You don't have to spend as much money in a race like that. We engaged in the Jean Schmidt race in Ohio. Her own constituents, actually, her nickname among her constituents was Mean Jean Schmidt. And it's not so much that people disagreed with her, they just really didn't like her. They didn't want her to represent them. So we got engaged in that race. This shows you how the ruling elite thinks about things. She was so sure, and the Republican polling apparatus was so sure she was gonna be reelected that the night before the election, she was in Washington, not even in her district. And so that indicates to us they probably thought that she was up double digits. Ultimately, her challenger, Brad Winstrup, won by 6%. Again, we didn't change Republican to Democrat. Winstrup is a Republican. They're going to have Republican representation in that district, but they're going to have somebody that they actually want. They had a choice. And this is really what matters. We also engaged in a race in Illinois, Manzullo versus Kinzinger. It was pretty controversial. This one, Manzullo had been in almost 20 years. He's what we call a term limits liar. He promised no more than 12 years, but he taught himself that his constituents loved him so much that they wanted to have him back again. So he had to continue running beyond his promise. And it was an interesting race because in the Tea Party movement, the Tea Party movement actually really liked Don Manzullo. So this is a little difficult for me coming out of the Tea Party. They had built a good relationship with him and he had worked to build that constituent relationship. But the rest of his constituents didn't really like him. He had a 39% informed reelect. And so we went in there and participated against Manzullo on behalf of Adam Kinzinger. It was a redistricting fight. So these are, Kinzinger had served one term already, young gun in the Republican Party. It was interesting because the Republican leadership supported Kinzinger. And in that case, it was a hard fought fight. Manzullo didn't really like us being engaged in that fight. The leadership kind of liked it. And it ended up that Adam Kinzinger beat Don Manzullo. So there are three races we've participated in so far our seven races, three victories. Now remember, three is the historic average, right? So we're doing pretty good for only 11% of the way into the primaries. It's causing a lot of controversy on both sides of the aisle. And this is one of the reasons we think it confirms we're doing the right thing. If you go out and research the CPA, you'll find that the NRCC has said that any political vendor that works for the campaign for primary accountability will never work for the NRCC again. We thought that was great press. We like that. On the other side of the aisle, we've had our Democratic political team actually th both threatened, so the stick approach and the carrot approach, from the Democratic power structure. And they've offered them campaign positions with the Obama re-election team, and they just want them to stop doing what they're doing. They can either take these lofty positions, or they can be assured they probably won't work again for the Democratic Party. So what this indicates to us is the power structure understands the power of incumbency, and they understand that we've found a weakness in the system that keeps incumbents reelected cycle after cycle. The entire point of this is to restore representative democracy. You know, we talk about representative democracy, and we have democracy, certainly. We all vote, right? We're a republic, and we go out and vote for our representatives or what we think, but we're participating in the wrong fight. And ultimately, we see this whole thing, the way the system is structured right now, it's structured like the World Wrestling Federation. 
So you get the guys, they come into the ring, and I describe the rings as the committee hearings that we see up here on the hill. And they say mean things about each other, and they, they have all this rhetoric that they spew at each other. And then they end up voting together for $1.4 trillion deficits. Whoever campaigned as being in favor of a $1.4 trillion deficit? Uh, we can't find those people. There's a fundamental disconnect between what people say on the campaign trail and then how they govern. We don't know what will happen with these new people that we help put into office. We make no predictions, except we believe that they will be more connected to their constituents and their community. So this play, the Campaign for Primary Accountability, is much broader than just who ends up getting elected. If that was it, it wouldn't be big enough, honestly, because the republic is at stake. But the intent is to send a message to the incumbents, to the power structure, to the ruling elite, that it's important to pay attention to your constituents. It's more important to pay attention to Main Street than K Street. It's more important to pay attention to your district than it is to the leadership of your party. You know, we hear stories all the time. You guys have heard the stories. You'll have somebody who they're hearing from their district that they don't want them to vote a certain way. And then they go into the leadership meetings and the leadership tells them it's okay because you're going to get reelected anyway. You can ignore your constituents and you vote with the party. You be a team player. So that kind of pressure is very intense in Washington. And the goal out of all of this is to let the folks in Washington know they have to pay attention to the folks back home. That's what this fight is about. It's nonpartisan. It's non-ideological. It's non-policy oriented. This is a governance reform. And overall, the fight that Eric and I are engaged in is a fight for self-governance. It's a fight to return the country to those roots, left or right or centrist or libertarian or Republican. To us, it's about letting the people decide. Eric started with, uh, or, or actually John started with this discussion of, of the genius of the American population. I got to tell you, three years ago, I was a cynic. I would not have agreed with that. I would have thought maybe it was that way three years ago, but not in my lifetime. You know, and I would have literally said, Americans are foolish and we get the government we deserve as a population. Now, having traveled across the country and met with literally thousands, tens of thousands of people from across the political spectrum, from both sides, from everywhere in the middle, what I realize is Americans are exceptional. They're bright, they're hardworking, they're ethical, they're honest, and they understand, in my opinion, how to run the country a heck of a lot better than the folks here on Capitol Hill. So CPA is a a slice of the pie. It's an attempt to return self-governance to America. There's a lot more to follow that. That's one slice of the pie, but that's our, electrical, our electoral entry into self-governance. Thank you for having me.